Revelation chapter 7, let's begin in verse 1. After these things, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, and that the wind should not blow on the earth and uh, on the sea or on any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees till we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of those who were sealed. One hundred and forty-four thousand of all the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. Of the tribe of Judah, twelve thousand were sealed. The tribe of Reuben, twelve thousand were sealed. Of the tribe of Gad, twelve thousand were sealed. Of the tribe of Asher, twelve thousand were sealed. Of the tribe of Naphtali, twelve thousand were sealed. And of the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 were sealed, and of the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 were sealed, of the tribe of Levi, 12,000 were sealed, of the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 were sealed, of the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 were sealed, of the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 were sealed, of the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000 were sealed. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. All the angels stood around the throne, and the elders and the four living creatures, and fell on their faces before the throne, and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, Who are these arrayed in white robes, and where did they come from? And I said to him, Sir, you know. So he said to me, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and washed the robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple, and he who sits on the throne will dwell among them. They shall neither hunger any more nor thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them nor any heat. For the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Chapter 8. When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. Then another angel, having a golden censer, came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense, and he, that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints ascended before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and threw it to the earth. And there were noises, thunderings, lightnings, and an earthquake. So the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound. The first angel sounded, and hail and fire followed, mingled with blood, and they were thrown to the earth. And a third of the trees were burned up, and all green grass was burned up. Then the second angel sounded, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood, and a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. Then the third angel sounded, and a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood, 
A third of the waters became wormwood, and many men died from the water because it was made bitter. Then the fourth angel sounded, and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of them were darkened. A third of the day did not shine, and likewise the night. And I looked, and I heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth, because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet and of the three angels who are about to sound. Let's pray together. Father, we love your word. We're so grateful that we get to feed upon it. We're so grateful that you build our lives upon it. We're so grateful that it won't return void. We're so grateful it will outlive the heavens and the earth. All these things that your word says about your word, we believe and treasure. And we pray that your spirit would teach us, Lord, as we look at these verses. We're so grateful we're on the right side of truth, those of us that know you in this room. Use this passage, Lord, to make us further like Christ. We commit it to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, in our scene here in the book of Revelation, we are right in the middle of the seven-year tribulation. There will be a rapture at some point. Believers will be snatched away to be with Christ. Shortly after that, there will be a peace contract that the Antichrist, the coming world leader, uh, will sign. And that initiates the seven-year tribulation. And we've seen it from the vantage point of heaven where Jesus broke that first seal. And that's when that that one that sat on that white horse came to earth and to conquer and so forth. And so we are right in the middle of that amazing scene. So Jesus is in the middle of breaking these seals. He's already broken seals one through six. And so today we're going to see him uh, break the seventh seal, which is going to, uh, the seventh seal is these seven trumpets that these angels blow there, which cause other judgments to happen. Now, we're mainly going to be looking at two groups of people in these two chapters that we'll be looking at. The first group is these, uh, hun- this 144,000, and then the second group is this massive number of Gentiles and-, and others, but mainly Gentiles, that get saved there in the seven-year tribulation. We've already seen some of them already be saved. Uh, last week, we saw them ask the Lord, when are you going to avenge our blood? When are you going to uh, uh, get back or, you know, uh, get revenge or have that payback, so to speak, of them killing us and so forth? Well, that salvation is still going to be uh, initiated through the 144,000. And so we're going to seal that seven seal that Jesus breaks, give way to those seven trumpets that the angels will blow. And then we'll look at four of those trumpets being blown uh, this week, and Lord willing, the, the, the rest of them uh, next week. So related to you understanding kind of how this time of tribulation and God's judgment kind of lays out in Scripture, you can remember it by three groups of seven. You can remember it by the seven seals, the seven trumpets, and the seven bowls. And so it, it's like a little trinity of judgment there. You have three, and there's seven within each of those. And seven, as we've already looked at, represents the number of completion or fulfillment. So the, each, each set of judgments is fulfilled and completed. And, and the full extent of what God wants to do related to judging this earth. And so that may help you as, we, as we're looking at this section between chapters 4 and chapters 19, where God is uh, judging this 
world. Now he begins in verse 1. He says, After these things I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, meaning north, east, uh, west, and south there, holding the four winds of the earth, because wind comes from those directions. When we talk about wind, we talk about them in the sense of a, a northwesterly wind or a wind from the north. That's, that's commonly how we think of winds blowing. And so it says in the middle of verse 1, that the wind should not blow on the earth, on the sea, or on any tree. No wind. Zero. No trade winds, nor, no storm activity, no ocean winds, nothing. Imagine being out on the ocean with no wind. Wow. Didn't say there's not going to be any waves. It just says there's not going to be any wind. I can't imagine that. No wind. Man, it affects man that they don't have wind. The wind functions for a, a lot of different ways in our, even in our society now. Now, they valued it in many ways so much greater because all the ships went by wind, right? But there's other ways that we utilize wind today. So that's going to be uh, a judgment. And, and someone could make the, the uh, comparison to what happens in heaven, as, as we'll see later on where there's silence in heaven. It's like the calm before the storm there. But it is a judgment. And then we see in verse 2, Then I saw another angel ascend from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. So we see Israel here, and I've mentioned this in the past. If you read Matthew 24 and 25, it's mainly God dealing with the nation of Israel in addition to pouring out his wrath uh, on this earth. And the book of Revelation is, when you, after chapter 4, there's really no mention of the church at all except you know in heaven, worshiping, and so forth. And so... Here we see, and this is important for you to know, if you're studying eschatology or, or the study of end times, it really helps you to understand and make sense of all of it if you understand that God has not given up on the nation of Israel. Some people spiritualize Israel, especially in Revelation, and interpret Israel as the church. And they say that we are spiritual Israel. That when Israel rejected the Messiah... Uh, even all the way up to A.D. 70 when he destro- God destroyed and judged the temple, that God doesn't deal with Israel anymore. And then it's just mainly the church from that point on. That is not the case. During the church age, he is mainly dealing with the, the, the Gentiles and the church and so forth. He's still ministering and working through the Jews, of course, as they come to know him. So it's not like he doesn't save them today or anything like that. But once the church is out, then his focus on this earth is dealing with Israel. So we reject replacement theology that teaches that the church has replaced Israel. It's, it hasn't replaced Israel. Read Romans chapter 9. God is not done with Israel. He's going to work through Israel and in Israel's uh, uh, the life of the, uh, those people. And he's going to come back at the end of the tribulation, proclaim himself to be the Messiah. He's going to walk through that eastern gate, proclaim himself to be the Messiah. And he's going to say, I've been here before. It'll be their revelation that this is, this is the true Messiah. It's Jesus. 
that we were wrong about all this time, and, and they will worship the Savior, something that he was worthy of all along. So we're told that these 144,000 were sealed. Now, a seal is a designation of ownership. And it shows kind of the official ownership of something. That's why when you get a diploma, it has a seal on it. It's showing that that diploma is from that university or that school. And and it's something that says, we own the rights to give you this diploma. It's a a seal. And so these... uh, These Jews here are given a seal. Now, we've been given a seal. We're told in Romans and other places that we've been sealed by the Holy Spirit, that he has given us this stamp of ownership on our lives. And so these 144,000 need to be sealed as well. And so he's going to do that. And and, and so that's what's going on. That's what these angels are in the middle of. It says, don't start this judgment until you seal these 144,000 Jews because they need to have that protection. They need to have that uh, protection while they're in the middle of all these judgments that are coming on the, on the earth. Now notice in verses 5 through 8, he gives us the tribes from which these uh, people originate. I won't read all of those again, but you can see all of those tribes there, and they are real tribes. People say, what are the lost tribes of Israel? Who are, you know, there's all kinds of teaching out there that says we need to identify where the tribes are right now and some have taught that it's the anglo-saxons and they were way off <laughs> uh, there was there's so many crazy teachings so is there 12 tribes yes who are they where are they we don't need to know that god identifies them he knows where they're at that's all that matters and so he identifies these these tribes there again this is not the church there's so many crazy interpretations of who these 144,000 uh, are. And it seems like every interpretation is, exists except the one that says these are a literal 144,000 Jews who receive Christ. And we will see them again in chapter 14. And so we'll see in chapter 14, there's the seal is really the name of God written on their foreheads. And so what's revealed is that these 144,000 are servants, we're told, of the Lord, their servants. Number two, we're told that divine protection is given to them related to this seal so that they can fulfill their ministry. And later on in chapter 14, we will see them sing a song of worship to the Lord. So they are Jews. Their number is 144,000. They are not symbolic. They are real people. But there's one other detail that we need to know, and I want us to hold our place here. Turn over to chapter 14 to give a further picture of Uh, and clarity related to these 144,000. Chapter 14, let's begin reading in verse 4. These are the ones who were were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These were redeemed from among men, being firstfruits to God and to the Lamb. And in their mouth was found no deceit, for they are without fault before the throne of God. So these are 140, and you can turn back to uh, chapter 7. So these are 144,000 male virgin Jews who were redeemed. They were taken from among men. They were unsaved Jews. 
Just like we all start out unsaved when we're born. Same with the Jews. They're unsaved, being born sinners, separated from a relationship with God. And they were redeemed. And we're also told in that passage that they follow the Lamb wherever he goes. So they are submitted to him. They are submitted to God. They are submitted to the Lamb. And that should mark our lives. Wherever God leads us, we should go. We should be worshiping the same as they are worshiping the same. And it says they're the first fruits. They are saved within that tribulation. They're one of the first to get saved in that great tribulation there. And they're going to evangelize the world. Again, God's heart is to seek and to save even in this great tribulation. He's, he's calling them to preach that gospel all over the world. He's going to call the two witnesses that he's going to raise up to witness to the truth. He's going to have angels preach the gospel. There's, he's still trying to reach this world. Now, think about this. Even in the context of judgment, he's still that seeking and saving God. He's still the, that shepherd that looks at people and says they are sheep without a shepherd. Even when they deserve all that judgment, he's still trying to give people a chance to repent. Even in the great tribulation, what an amazing God we serve. Now, this group has, this 144,000 has been misinterpreted. Like I said, the fam- most famously, the Jehovah's Witnesses have misinterpreted it as those are the true Christians or the first Christians. And kind of when that number was fulfilled, then everyone after that doesn't go to heaven when they die. They live in paradise on earth. And that's completely false. Like I said, every interpretation <laughs> except the obvious one is just, it's naming the tribes. These are men. These are virgins. These are Jews. That's who they are. And if you can go th- through this with them on your doorstep and say, if, are, are, they probably won't claim to be one in the 144,000, but you could say the ones that, that were in the very beginning of your organization, were they these things? I mean, it literally says that this is what, how, how God describes them. So a lot of false teaching uh, out there. Verse 9. After these things, I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands. So this is the second group mentioned, like I said, we'd be looking at today. It says a great multitude that no one could number. No one on their own could count. All these that are getting saved and so forth. Look at all the places from which they came. All nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues. That's describing Gentiles. That's describing a lost world there. And they are coming to Christ with all their diversity. I love it. God isn't more concerned with any one group of people except he's the, you know, concerned about the lost. They're all lost. There's one race, human race. And you're either saved or you're not saved. That's the designations that, that's the most important to God. Are, we, are you saved? Are you here today and you're not saved? Do you know Christ today? He wants to save you. He wants to make you into a new creation. We're told that they're in white robes there uh, in the verse. They're, they're clothed with white robes. And the tense there in the Greek is that someone else clothed them. In other words, it was provided. These clothes were provided. Now, I remember watching movies, you know, and as as a kid and people get lost out in the country somewhere and they happen across a farm, you know, and they're drenched and so forth. And there's that hospitality. Come on in. Let's get you some clothes on. Let's get you some warm clothes and, and, and let's get you comfortable and so forth. These people, they're, 
they're given white robes of righteousness. It's communicating our positional standing with God. Right now, we don't have a practical righteousness in the sense of perfection. We are positionally righteous with Christ. That's the only reason why he could have anything to do with us right now. Because that, that righteousness of Christ has been put to our account. But practically, we still sin every day. We fall short because the standard is still perfection. And thus, we fall short of that standard every single day. So they're given these white robes. And also, they have palm branches in their hands. People would have palm branches at victory parades. You may remember at Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem, they had palm branches and they sang that messianic psalm and said, Hosanna, Hosanna. And, and it's, it's a declaration of, of victory and so forth. And so they're there and they're proclaiming the victory of God related to them being in heaven. And it says in verse 10, And crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. They are worshiping. They are breaking out with a loud voice saying to God, you are worthy. We're in heaven. We can't believe that we're here. You ever been somewhere and you just go, I just can't believe that I'm here right now. That could be a good thing or it could be a really bad thing. (laughs) But if you know a place where you're just in awe, I'm trying to remember something that would be so amazing that I would be in shock. Just like, I can't believe I'm here right now. I know it's happened. Um, I'll think of something maybe before the end. But you're just in shock there. And that's, they're just there and they're just amazed that they're there. You know, when I think about us being in heaven, I think about the fact that we'll, rem- we'll know fully what Christ paid in, in the sense of as much as he, our new bodies can take and how much he wants us to know, we will know even more. He has those scars on his wrists and his feet and his side. We'll be able to see that. We'll be able to worship him. We'll be able to look in those eyes that love us so much. We'll be able to hug him. We'll be able to just be right there in his physical presence like that. And and we will just have nothing to say. And we will say, salvation belongs to our God. In other words, no one owns salvation. No one else can offer salvation. Only the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of the Bible. There's only one name given uh, under heaven, given among men, which we must be saved. And, and they are there and they are, they are worshiping. They're standing before God. They're in a posture of reverence. They're standing and worshiping God everywhere through the Old Testament, in the, in the, um, in the temple, in the tabernacle, G- uh, Moses standing before God in the burning bush. I mean, everywhere there's reverence there. When reverence is required, they're standing and they're worshiping and they are acknowledging God. The Father's the only one that's sitting in this picture. The angels are standing, the elders are standing, everyone's standing. They're either standing or they're falling down on their knees and being prostrate before uh, God and worshiping him. And it's a beautiful picture. Verse 11. All the angels stood around the throne and the elders and the four living creatures and fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, Amen. Amen means that's the truth. What are they saying that to? What are they saying amen to? Well, what the multitude said in verse 10. They, they hear this worship from this multitude, and it's a catalyst for worship. Just like as we've seen these four living creatures cause the 24 elders to worship, now this great multitude that are being saved from the great tribulation and so forth, and, and they are worshiping God, and it's causing everyone else to worship. You know, worship is contagious, and they are ready to worship. We should be ready to worship God 
any time. We shouldn't necessarily need some kind of warm-up. It's not an emotional thing anyway. It's a spiritual thing. And we should be ready to worship at any time and just give Him praise and worship for all that He's due. Because no matter what we are going through, no matter what we're experiencing, He is worthy of that worship. Amen? I believe that He is. And notice what they add uh, in the rest of verse 12. Blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. They can't even let those that multitude say that and be the only ones talking, only ones praising and worshiping. They add to it. And, and he's saying, just like we went over this before, these are things that they mentioned in the rest of verse 12 there that man can offer God. And, and that God deserves all that man can offer to him. All these things, blessings and the glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might. Everything that we have, he is due all of that and more for all eternity, forever and ever. And then they say, they amen their own, their own worship. You can do that. Did you know that? You can amen yourself. It's better than liking your own post on Facebook or social media. This is amen to my worship. That's the truth. What I just said is the truth. So you can amen yourself just for the record. It's true. Verse 13. Then one of the elders answered saying to me, who are these arrayed? Oh, look at that word arrayed. It just speaks of beauty. Who are these arrayed in white robes? And where did they come from? And I said to him, Sir, you know, <laughs> that's exactly what we would probably say. I don't know, but I'm not even going to take a guess. I'm afraid to, st- I'm just, you know, you're just there and you're in- just taken up by the moment and you're seeing all of this and you want only 100% truth coming out of your life at that moment. There's everything else that's there is representing 100% truth and you don't want to be wrong and you may- maybe even be a little bit sure, but you want to be 100% positive and you just, you don't want to say anything. You think, you know, why is he asking me? You know, and he says, sir, that shows reverence there. You know, you tell me, I don't know. I don't know, maybe 100% for sure, but you know, so you, you, you say it to me. And so he says, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Isn't it ironic that they're washing their robes in blood to get them white? That's never been done before in the, human, in the history of mankind in terms of the physical sense. And it, but this is a spiritual sense. This is the blood of the Lamb. Again, I told you, all the designations, and there's more designations for Jesus in any, than any other book in the Bible, in the book of Revelation. And the most one that's cited, I believe it's 38 times, is the Lamb. And it's because he was slain. And because he was slain, he and his blood was shed there that we can be washed white there. Our robes can be washed white. It's his righteousness being put to our account. You don't have to be afraid that you're going to sin in heaven. That's what's so amazing, is that we're not going to have a sinful nature. We'll still have a free will, because worship isn't worship without a will. We'll still have a will, but we won't have a sinful nature, and we will worship him with everything that we have, with our new bodies, and everything about our new bodies is going to be centered or calibrated related to worshiping our God. Now, the elder continues in verse 15. He says, Therefore, 
They are before the throne and serve him day and night in his temple. You want to know what we're going to be doing? Not just worshiping, not just ruling and reigning, but we're also going to be serving him day and night in his temple. Notice the word temple there. I have told you many times that the, the tabernacle and the temple were just copies or models of the true sanctuary that Hebrews refers to. So it is a temple. Heaven is a temple. It's a place of worship. It's a place where God is at the center. But he says that one of the things we will be doing is serving him day and night. Now, does he need us? God doesn't need us for anything. Amen? Would you want to serve a God that needed us? I want to serve a God that's infinite, that is in need of nothing. But he wants us. Just like when you have your children work alongside you in a project, you want them with you because you love them. They're not the most qualified people in the neighborhood that you could find when they're little especially. But you want them with you. You want them being a part of what you're doing. So it's a privilege, just like it's a privilege to serve him now, it's a privilege then to serve him as well. He could create 15 quadrillion, billion, whatever the word, the number is, of some creatures to serve him. He doesn't need us to serve him, but he lets us serve him. What a privilege. And he who sits on the throne will dwell among them. That's not by accident. He wants to dwell among us. He's a personal God. He's not aloof. He's not disconnected from us. He's not trying to keep us at a healthy distance. There's no such thing as far as he's concerned. He wants to be close to us. Even in heaven, he wants to be as close as he can possibly be. Verse 16, he's still speaking, this elder. They shall neither hunger anymore, nor thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them, nor any heat. For the lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of waters. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Now, we could miss it if we weren't looking carefully, but we could miss God's heart. We've seen a little bit of it. He wants to be among them. He wants to save them. He's sending out these evangelists to reach the world. We've seen a little bit of God's heart. This is revealing more of his heart, and you could miss it if you didn't look carefully. I want to remind us that these Jews that get saved didn't make the rapture. They had rejected Christ up to this point. They were Christ rejectors before. Now they have accepted Christ. And because of that, they've suffered and been martyred and, and, and so forth. And so God is revealing his heart to them. Notice in verse 15, he wants to dwell with them, as I said. Verse, verse 16 reveals that he won't allow them to hunger, thirst, or suffer from the sun anymore. This speaks of what they went through on the earth during the tribulation. And verse 17 tells us that Jesus is going to shepherd them and lead them. And, and then on top of all of that, he's going to wipe away every tear. These are the very people that up until the rapture had rejected him. These Jews and these other people that have gotten saved out of all these different nations and so forth. That's the heart of God. He sees us before we come to know Christ as sheep without a shepherd. He wants to shepherd us. He wants to care for us. And, and he wants to wipe away every tear. And we're going to see that at the end of the book when he's going to wipe away all of our tears. Not just these people at this point. He's going to wipe away all of our tears because the old order will have passed away. Amazing God's uh, incredible heart. And it's so easy to pass over it. Again, this is a time of judgment. This is a time of him pouring out his wrath. But he's still trying to save people. He's still trying to reach people. 
He's still wanting to shepherd them. He's still wanting to care for them. He's still wanting to lead them like any good shepherd would and lead them into great things. It's a great heart that he has. Chapter 8. When he had opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. Now, someone has said that this means that there's no women in heaven. I don't believe that. I didn't, I didn't come up with that. I'm just telling you what other people have said erroneously there. Come on, you have to have a sense of humor here. Some women have said there's no suffering or no sorrow in heaven, so that means there's no men there. So, you know, it's kind of evens out or whatever. But in all seriousness, what is this silence? What, it's like you've heard the term, the calm before the storm. It's, it's, it, it's arresting to us as we study it because there's something that's about to happen. These trumpets are about to be blown. That's what the seventh seal is. It's these seven trumpet judgments. Now we're getting into the second third related to his perfect judgment, the second seven, so to speak. And so it's like, I know there's probably not a a sign in heaven at this point saying, okay, the next 30 minutes, be quiet. I don't believe there's a sign blinking there, like an audience sign, you know, a clapping sign for the audience when you're at a, you know, a studio, them taping something for television. It's not, I don't believe there's a sign there. I believe that they sense something from God himself. And of course, I believe it includes having an awe of God, of of what they have a sense that there's whatever's going to happen. We don't know if they know what's going to happen, if he's told them ahead of time. But there's some sense there that there's going to heavy stuff's going to happen. But I also believe it's God possibly, we don't know this, but possibly communicating about his a sobriety and how he's being forced to do something he'd rather not do that he would rather not judge this world and pour out these judgments like he has been and so forth and so these uh these these creatures these angels the you know we've seen a lot of different parties so to speak we've seen the 24 elders the four living creatures we've seen a hundred million angels plus we've seen uh all these from every tongue, tribe, nation, getting saved out of the tribulation. We already saw before that us worshiping. We're on that glassy sea there before the throne worshiping. I mean, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of millions worshiping. Just think about all the noise just if they were trying to be quiet. <laughs> you ever see a group of people try to be quiet? It's, it can be pretty noisy. Think about hundreds of millions of people. You've just been worshiping. You've just been, you know, and there's complete Silence. Absolute silence. This thick, holy awe over what God is going to do next is deafening. The silence is deafening. 30 minutes. That means there's time. Sometimes we say there's no time in heaven. And all the just recorded time. See, time is the recording of events, succession of events. So if you're not recording time, there's there's no time. It's just you're just existing. And so forth. So here's this time here, and, and it's it's this heavy awe and reverence and respect and and just waiting. What is God going to do with these trumpet judgments? This seventh seal. They know like the number seven and, and the fulfillment is of these seals. This last one is going to be something pretty incredible. So they're silent before God. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, verse two, and to them were given, they were given something seven trumpets then another angel having a golden censer came and stood at the altar 
he was given much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. And all of this is Old Testament imagery of how they would worship God. And again, the, the recipients would be Jewish at first. They'd know exactly what all of this is. We have to get caught up a little bit. A censer was kind of like a, a box that they would fill uh, with coal, with hot coal there. It's something that the priests would, would bring over to the altar and fill. And this kind of fire box would be uh, opened. These live coals from the altar would be put inside there. And then another priest would come and he would have incense and they would put incense on these hot coals. It would cause smoke and it would fill that place with that aroma and, and the smoke and so forth. And this, it wasn't just the smell. We think of uh, uh, incense is just smell, it, but it's also the smoke was, it was a symbol of prayers there. And so this is, he's about to use this to, to cast fire down on the earth. So this is talking about this is holy. This is a holy judgment. This is originating from a holy God who has these things that are separated just for that purpose. It's a holy judgment. Again, we could be tempted to think this is too much. This is overboard. This is overkill. It's not. It's a flawlessly appropriate not one bit of this judgment is too much or too little. It's exactly what mankind deserves there. And it is holy. Again, they've had everything else already. They've had these four, horse, these four horsemen and these other judgments that have come already up to this point. So the cumulative effect is just overwhelming. And he's just getting started. It's amazing to think. Again, 25% of the world's population is left alive at the end of the seven-year tribulation. 75% of this world's population is going to die during these seven years. Verse 6. We'll first go back to verse 5. He took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and threw it to the earth. And there were noises, thunderings, lightnings, and an earthquake. So the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound. The first angel sounded, and hail and fire followed, mingled with blood, and they were thrown to the earth. And a third of the trees were burned up in all green grass. Now, we're not told what this exactly is, but it's, it's, it's going to scorch a third of the trees and all. Notice the word all at the end of verse 7. And all green grass was burned up. So a third of the trees, but all the grass is going to be burned up. Can you imagine that happening at all at the same time? You know, people may ask, well, why would God do that? I mean, aren't trees good? You know, are we supposed to hug them or something? You know, I mean, why, why? I mean, remember, trees are a resource. They're a resource for God's, for, for people. And it's a sign of judgment. Now, I want, I want to highlight something in the, in the rest of this chapter. There's, he's going to use the phrase a third six times. And there's a reason for that. He's incrementally judging them. And he, it basically, that's communicating, I could have done all of it if I wanted to. He's, he could have just wiped everybody out. So he's doing a third, a third, a third, and it's, it's, giving, it's basically communicating God's grace because of what he could have. If you have this much power to do these things, you're only doing a portion of it. Obviously, that's telling you, you God could have done all of it if he wanted to. And it speaks of God's grace. And even when, if, especially if people are walked, walking away from the Lord and they're under God's discipline, you know, they, they knew the Lord and they're walking away from him. They're in willful disobedience to him. God has a way of disciplining us. 
Maybe you're here today and he's, he's wiped out a third of your life. It's, it's, it's not to hurt you. It's to demonstrate, to get your attention. That's what a lot of these judgments are, are his purpose for them in a lot of ways for the people that he's still trying to reach. He's still trying to reach the world, and even in the context of judging this world. And so he's trying to reach them and trying to give them a wake-up call. Now, we're told many of them don't repent. Even in the midst of all of that, they're still not repenting. They're still not turning to God, but some do. And so if you're here today and you're not walking with the Lord, don't be under God's discipline anymore. Turn back to him. The fact that he didn't discipline you more is an evidence of his grace and his patience with you. Turn back to him. There's no life worth living apart from him at all. Now notice the second trumpet is blown in verse 8. Then the second angel sounded and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea. And a third, there's the third again, a third of the sea became blood. So we don't know what this great mountain is. John doesn't know either. So he uses the word like. I don't know what this is, but it's like this great mountain. So is it an asteroid? Is it a meteor? Is it, who knows? It could be something entirely different, not, that can't be explained from a natural explanation. But, he, but, it, but it kills. A third of the sea became blood. And a third of the living creatures in the sea died. And a third of the ships were destroyed. Now, when this was written, the ships weren't that big. This, this, this is, God knew, obviously, the context of what, how ships would be. Think about it. Aircraft carrier going down. Think about that. So these people were reading this, as I said in the very beginning. They don't have our context. All this time and all we've studied the Bible, we've been trying to understand their context, understand the scriptures. But if they could have asked us what our world would be, we could help them better understand Revelation. That's, that's unique. So we know now, think of all the ships. And it says the sea there. It's probably talking about the Mediterranean Sea. That was the main sea there, but we don't know for sure. But we're talking a massive judgment there that, ta- that takes out a third of the ships and a third of the creatures in the sea. Think about how, many, uh, how much sea life is in the ocean, in any given ocean or any given sea. That would just affect so many things economically on top of everything else. Then the third angel sounded, and a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch. And it, was, it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many men died from the water because it was made bitter. So whatever comes, whatever star caught from, comes and crashes to this earth, it's going to spread and destroy a third of the rivers and the springs of water and so forth, and it's going to turn the water bitter, and some men will uh, drink some of that water, and they will die as a result of it. That's a clear judgment. It's like God is saying, you know, your rejection of me, your blasphemous uh, commentary on me, your actions and all of that have given me a bitter taste in my mouth, and maybe now you need to experience a little of that yourself. And so God judges the earth in that way. Then the fourth angel sounded, and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of them were darkened. A third of the day did not shine, and likewise the night. So however God does that, there's this judgment on being able to see. I mean, people are going to just be 
having heart attacks because of what's happening. Again, all these things are cumulative. They keep compounding, compounding, compounding on top of one another. And every single bit of it is completely appropriate. It's like as if God is saying, just like the last judgment, with the bitterness. It's like you've been wanting to walk in darkness. I'm going to give you some darkness. I'm not going to wipe everything out. I'm going to give you time to repent. I'm going to show you I could have done it all, but I didn't. I restrained myself. And if I restrain myself in the physical judgment of this world, then I can restrain myself in my, oper- my invitation for you to come to me and, rest- and not just not give you a- an- another opportunity. He's still trying to reach the lost. Verse 13. And I looked and I heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of of the earth because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet and the three angels who are about to sound. Flying angel going through. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth. It's not woe of what just happened. I mean, that's true. But he, the, the angel's focusing on what's yet to come. He hasn't even got to the seven bold judgments that are coming after that. Wow, huge to think about what's going to happen in this world. Again, just like last week, this should cause us to think about eternity. This should cause us to think about who do we know that doesn't know Christ? What neighbor haven't we introduced ourselves to? And I'm talking to me right now. I am not famous for being aggressively, you know, friendly or going out of my way to meet neighbors. Uh, But it's important. Who are our neighbors or who do people that we work with? Who has gotten off our prayer list? related to salvation who in our family we just we've preached the gospel then so many times and we're just so tired of their rejection god doesn't give up he keeps going he keeps preaching that gospel he keeps sending messengers and we can say you know i have preached the gospel to that person for 20 plus years and i get the same answer every time rejection but maybe in year 27 Remember, God is working 24 hours a day in people's lives. He's willing that none should perish, but all come to repentance. And it's not just up to you. Pray that God sends other people in their path. Pray that they would have dreams and nightmares or, or other people, would everywhere they go, they're hearing that message. They're driving down the road. Oh, there's that billboard again that says, Jesus loves me. How come I can't get away from this message? I mean, we think it's just only up to us. And it's not. It's not on all on our shoulders at all. But we still need to do our part. Time is running out, church. It's running out. Things are getting closer and closer and closer. Just look at Israel. Look at what's happening in Israel today. And you see things are getting closer. Things are getting closer. We can see things starting to align related to Christ's second coming. Revelation 19. And if if that's we're starting to see those things come. And the, the rapture seven years earlier. How much closer are we? We need to take that into consideration. And I want to keep bringing this up as we go through because it's supposed to have its effect in our lives. To be eternally minded. To be thinking about eternity. To be thinking about the kingdom of God. And he's not going to turn us all into evangelists in the sense of the office of evangelists, but he's called each one of us to bear fruit and to, and to preach that gospel. He brings us together to be discipled so that we can go out there and preach the gospel. He doesn't want it to, us to be dependent upon inviting people to church, as wonderful as that is. He wants us to be able to communicate that gospel on our own. 
You're a sinner. You need a Savior. Here's the Savior. Do you want to receive Him? And, and be able to communicate that. I communicate the Gospel at the end of every service. You should be able to communicate that Gospel to people. And, I, and you don't push yourself or, or force yourself through doors that aren't open. Of course, you want to be tactful and prayerful and led by the Spirit and so forth. But man, He wants to keep our hearts close to Him. And his, his, what's important to Him is people getting saved. And it's important for us to keep that message at the, at the forefront of our hearts. Secondly, related to serving God. We've seen that in heaven we are waiting upon Him. We're, we're serving Him. We're there serving our God. And, and part of what He's preparing us for is that service. And sometimes we think, well, when I get my new body, I'll, you know, that will prepare me. In, well, it will in many ways in a physical sense with our new body. But remember, He's going to add to our, our consciousness He's going to add so many things. It's not like we're going to not know anything that we've experienced and, and not even remember earth. I believe that at some point, he's going to wipe, part of wiping away every tear is wiping our memory of people that we don't see in heaven that, that we care about. That's probable. But, but he's adding to what we already know about him. In other words, he's preparing us for heaven, what we know now, and he's going to add to that when we get to heaven. So it's important for us as we serve him now, that is preparing us to serve him then in many ways. And so that's, we can't be like Christ if we're not a servant. Jesus served. So he, he calls us to serve. So what, what's our ministry? What is he calling us to do? He's called us and created us in Christ Jesus for good works. That he's prepared in advance that we should walk in them. And it's goofy in our country, in our Western culture. It's so individual, individualistic. And we can forget that it's not supremely about us. It's about God. And it's about his people. It's about being busy about his business. He gives us the spiritual gifts that he gives us. Not supremely for our benefit, but for the benefit of others. Even the fruit of the spirits for other people's enjoyment. When you go up to a tree, it's not supremely for the tree's benefit that it's bearing fruit. It's for other people's benefit. When they go up to that tree and pluck that fruit and to enjoy. So our whole life, we need to... And it's, it's a work in progress, I know that, myself included, to help us to get our focus off ourselves and onto him and onto serving and being busy about his business. And so that's, that's what he's saying. If we're serving him in heaven, if we're waiting on him in heaven, then we need to be doing that now. That prepares us for then. Amen?